Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, April 5th, 2022 podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to telling about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Let's get started. With the availability of COVID-19 vaccinations came an increase in the already substantial interest in the potential adverse events associated with vaccination. The first article I'll note is a retrospective cohort study that estimates that shoulder injury occurs in fewer than 1 in 10,000 persons who receive an intramuscular vaccination administered in the deltoid muscle. The National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program provides financial compensation to those who suffer one of the adverse events on its list of vaccine-related injuries. In 2017, shoulder injury related to vaccine administration was added to this list based on convincing evidence of a causal relationship between the injection of a vaccine and deltoid bursitis. Besides bursitis, other shoulder conditions have been linked to vaccination. The proposed mechanism is that the shoulder conditions are caused by immune responses when vaccines are injected into the shoulder joint instead of the deltoid muscle. However, epidemiologic data on shoulder conditions after vaccination are limited. Researchers from Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, studied health records for more than 3.7 million persons administered vaccinations into the deltoid muscle between April 2016 and December 2017 to estimate the risk for shoulder conditions after vaccination and assess possible risk factors. A natural language processing algorithm was applied to the database to identify potential shoulder conditions among vaccinated persons with shoulder disorder diagnosis codes and the characteristics of vaccinated persons with and without shoulder conditions were compared. Among the more than 3.7 million administered vaccinations, 371 cases of shoulder conditions were identified with an estimated incidence of 0.99 per 10,000 adult vaccinations. The incidence was even less for pediatric recipients with only four cases of shoulder conditions in more than 750,000 vaccinations. In all cases, the shoulder problem resolved within six months. When the researchers looked for risk factors for developing shoulder conditions, they found that among adults, advanced age, female sex, an increased number of outpatient visits in the six months before vaccination, and receiving pneumococcal conjugate vaccine were associated with a higher risk for shoulder conditions. Among influenza vaccines, quadrivalent vaccines were associated with an increased risk for shoulder conditions. Simultaneous administration of vaccines was also associated with a higher risk for shoulder conditions among elderly persons. So the bottom line is shoulder injury can occur with vaccination into the deltoid muscle, but it's very uncommon. Invasive surgical procedures and accompanying stress can trigger acute myocardial infarction in vulnerable patients. Previous studies examining the association of ophthalmologic procedures with acute myocardial infarction have had inconsistent results. However, the American Academy of Ophthalmology guidelines recommend refraining from unnecessary preoperative medical tests for average risk patients scheduled for most types of eye surgery. However, in many settings, patients are required to undergo preoperative testing prior to eye surgery. Researchers from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Trondheim and Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, conducted a case crossover study of 350,031 patients in Norway and Sweden who had experienced a first-time acute myocardial infarction. 
Of these patients, 806 had experienced the event within 36 days of undergoing an ophthalmological procedure. Among these patients, there was a lower likelihood of acute myocardial infarction during the week after an ophthalmologic procedure than during a previous control week. Further, there was no evidence of increased risk for myocardial infarction when analyses were stratified by surgery subtype, duration, or invasiveness, anesthesia type, patient age, or comorbidity. Thus, these data show that ophthalmologic procedures done in outpatient setting were not associated with an increased risk for acute myocardial infarction. An accompanying editorial notes that despite the growing body of evidence indicating that eye procedures have a low risk of complications, even in older patients, medical testing and consultations are common. In August 2021, leadership within the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Department of Defense approved a joint clinical practice guideline for the management of substance use disorders. These updated guidelines, which are summarized in the next article, include consideration of telehealth for substance use disorders, which became an important component of treatment during the COVID-19 pandemic. As of 2019, 20.4 million Americans met criteria for substance use disorders, with rates reportedly increasing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Effective treatment of these patients can help to prevent premature deaths from substance abuse, disorder-related disease, accidents, and suicide. The author summarized the recommendations that have the most clinical impact, including management of alcohol use disorder, use of buprenorphine and opioid use disorder, contingency management, and the use of technology and telehealth to manage patients remotely. The 2021 guidelines recommend using technology-based interventions in addition to usual care for alcohol use disorder and structured telephone-based care as an adjunct to usual care for substance use disorder. In most industries, consumers make informed choices that include cost as a main consideration. With prescription drugs, however, the doctor does not know the cost, and the patient may learn the cost only in the pharmacy upon picking up the drug. This might not be such a problem if prescription drugs were predictably priced and generally affordable. However, in the U.S., obscure and unpredictable cost variations in prescription drugs can arise in a number of contexts. Prices can vary irrationally, for example, between different strengths of the same drug, as well as among different formulations or devices. In some cases, the generic can actually be more expensive than the brand drug option under certain health plans. The next article is a commentary that argues for a sensible means for physicians, pharmacists, and patients to obtain information on what drugs cost for a particular patient. Designing a patient price guide for prescription medication could go a long way in ensuring that patients are prescribed the most affordable option. Diabetes increasingly occurs in people of reproductive age and, if poorly controlled, can compromise sperm quality and impair male fertility. The authors of the next article wanted to examine whether diabetes drugs can affect male reproductive health. Researchers from the University of Southern Denmark and Stanford University studied data from the Danish National Registries of Patients, Prescriptions, and Births to evaluate whether the risk for birth defects varied among offspring born to men with diabetes treated with insulin, metformin, or sulfonylureas prior to conception. The researchers looked for birth defects in 1,116,779 babies born to mothers who did not have diabetes or hypertension. Babies were considered exposed to a diabetes drug if the father filled at least one prescription during the three months prior to conception. 
This is the period of spermatogenesis for the fertilizing sperm. The researchers compared birth defects in the babies across diabetes drugs and in unexposed siblings of the babies. Overall, 3.3% of the babies were born with a major birth defect. Babies whose fathers took insulin during the three months prior to conception had no increased risk for birth defects compared to the overall population. But babies whose fathers took metformin during this period had an increased risk for birth defects, mostly urogenital defects in boys. There were too few babies whose fathers took sulfonylureas to determine risk for birth defects with any certainty. Taking metformin before or after, but not during the period of sperm development, did not increase the risk for birth defects, and unexposed siblings were also not at increased risk. According to the authors, the size of the diabetes pandemic suggests that the treatment of prospective fathers with diabetes, including pharmacologic management and counseling on diet, physical exercise, and weight loss, should be subject to further study. These findings suggest that men with diabetes who are taking metformin should talk to their doctors about whether they should switch to another treatment when trying to conceive a child. However, because diabetes control also affects sperm quality, discontinuing metformin treatment could also affect birth outcomes. While much attention is paid to the potential adverse effects on birth outcomes of drugs that mothers take, this study suggests that father's pharmaceutical use also deserves attention. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Jermaine Buck-Lewis of George Mason University emphasizes the importance of confirming these findings given the prevalence of metformin use as first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes. She also calls for guidance to help couples planning pregnancy weigh the risks and benefits of paternal metformin use relative to other medications. Almost 2 billion adults and 340 million children and adolescents globally are living with overweight or obesity. Excess weight increases risk for cardiovascular disease and some types of cancer, and worsens psychological health. Behavioral weight loss programs focus on weight loss through changes in diet and physical activity and are considered effective treatments for overweight and obesity and may improve psychological well-being. Motivational interviewing is a psychotherapeutic intervention that aims to engage patients in behavior change. Next is a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that found that motivational interviewing did not increase the effectiveness of behavioral weight management programs. Given the intensive training and resources required for its delivery, this evidence suggests that motivational interviewing may not be a worthwhile addition to behavioral weight loss programs. Researchers from the University of Oxford conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of 46 studies that included over 11,000 participants to assess the independent contribution of motivational interviewing as part of a behavioral weight loss program in controlling weight and improving psychological well-being. Studies assess motivational interviewing to determine if it increased weight loss or enhanced weight maintenance compared with no or minimal intervention, increased weight loss or enhanced weight maintenance when used with weight management interventions compared with a similar weight management intervention without motivational interviewing, and if motivational interviewing improves psychological well-being. The authors found that compared to no or minimal intervention, programs incorporating motivational interviewing led to about one kilogram greater weight loss in adults at three and six months of follow-up. However, only two studies provided weight data after one year, with no evidence of a sustained effect. The authors also found no evidence that incorporating motivational interviewing into a program improved weight loss at any time point or improved psychological well-being, 
compared with either similar intensity or lower intensity programs that did not include motivational interviewing. Next is an article reporting a retrospective cohort study that found that rates of anaphylaxis among the most commonly used intravenous iron formulations were very low, but were three to eightfold greater for iron dextran and furimoxetol than for iron sucrose. Clarifying the risk for this rare but adverse reaction, this study helps to inform the choice of IV iron preparations. The next article is a chilling study of statewide data in California from 2004 to 2016 that found that homicide rates for adults who live with handgun owners are twice as high compared to adults who do not live with handgun owners. Among homicides occurring at home, adults were seven times more likely to die by homicide with a firearm at the hand of a spouse or intimate partner who owns a gun, with the vast majority of those victims being women. In one of every three homes in the United States, there is at least one firearm. Firearm owners cite the protection of themselves and their family as the lead motivator for owning a gun, and three quarters of gun owners report feeling safer because they have a firearm in their home. Evidence from previous studies suggests that gun ownership actually increases rates of suicide and homicide in the home. However, the studies of homicide have been limited in size and scope. Researchers from Stanford University studied data on gun purchasing and death records for more than 17.6 million California adults to estimate the association between living with a lawful handgun owner and risk for homicide victimization. The analysis revealed more than double the risk of homicide among the 595,448 adults living with handgun owners. The record showed that these elevated rates were driven largely by higher rates of homicide by firearm, and two-thirds of the people who lived with gun owners and faced these elevated risks were women. The authors also note that while a small minority of homicides occurring at home were perpetrated by strangers, adults living with gun owners did not experience these attacks at lower rates than adults living with non-owners. In an accompanying editorial that I wrote with Dr. Sue Bornstein, the chair-elect of the American College of Physicians Board of Regents, we argue that gun violence both inside and outside the home should be treated as an epidemic and tackled with a multifaceted public health approach. To combat this issue, the U.S. needs to advance legislation to enable risk protection laws, establish programs to address social factors, and enforce strong consequences for companies and individuals who facilitate the misuse of firearms. The next article also concerns firearm injury. It reports a large cohort study that found that survivors of non-fatal firearm injuries face an increased likelihood of psychiatric disease, substance use disorders, and pain following the injury. In addition, surviving a non-fatal gunshot resulted in substantial increases in healthcare spending and use. The health of family members of those injured also deteriorated. About 40,000 Americans suffer fatal firearm injuries each year, but more than twice as many sustain firearm injuries and survive. However, evidence on the clinical and economic implications of non-fatal firearm injuries remains limited. Researchers from Harvard Medical School at Massachusetts General Hospital studied actual claims from commercial and Medicare data between 2008 and 2018 to measure changes in clinical and economic outcomes after non-fatal firearm injuries among survivors and their family members. The authors use advanced modern matching techniques to assess these outcomes among 6,498 firearm injury survivors 
12,489 family members, and 94,935 total matched control participants for both groups. They found that survivors, along with their employers, insurers, and society, end up paying large sums for health care as a result of firearm injuries. About $2,500 per person per month or more, or an over 400% increase in spending during the first year following the injury. Extrapolating this nationwide, it would amount to roughly $2.5 billion more for direct health care in the first year after firearm injury alone. Family members did not escape harm after their loved ones were injured. They experienced a 12% increase in mental health disorders, including depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. According to the authors, these findings suggest that survivors and family members should be routinely evaluated for mental health care needs after a firearm injury. They emphasize the importance of screening for firearm safety by frontline clinicians. More attention should also be paid to safe prescribing of pain medications and monitoring for alcohol and substance use disorders after firearm injury. Also new is the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. In this episode, Dr. Center talks about the American College of Physicians Clinical Guidelines on Diverticulitis with Dr. Lisa Strateg from the University of Washington. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org for a look at some of the new material I've highlighted. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.